Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Thank you so much for joining me for what should be, I think, a really interesting podcast. We are going to start with a headline that intrigued me this week. It was from the New York Times, and it read, Is this the new cocktail capital of Europe? To give us what that capital is, I have the author of that article here. He is David Farley. Hey, David, thanks for appearing again on the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. So break the suspense. What is possibly the new cocktail capital of Europe? It is Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, a very unlikely destination for cocktail drinking, but it turns out It is a super great cocktail bar city. Your article was absolutely fascinating, even for teetotalers, because it it weaves in the history of Serbia and of Belgrade, and it talks about how the immigrant experience kind of created this this capital. Can you just give a a, like a nutshell or recent history of, of Belgrade? Sure. I mean, it turns out that 100 years ago, Belgrade was one of the great party spots of Europe. And then after uh, World War One or World War Two, sorry, the formation of Yugoslavia, in which it became a socialist nation, then the wars of the 90s in the Balkans, and then finally the U.S.-led NATO bombings of Serbia in 1999 kind of made all that had long dried up, the sort of party, yeah. the drinking, the everything – and then because of the, the wars of the, uh, in the, Balk- of the 90s in the Balkans, a lot of people fled. And they, some of them went to New York and some of them went to London, for example. And in those places, some of those people got jobs in bars and ended up getting trained as professional you know, bartenders or mixologists, whatever you want to call them. And eventually, about starting about 20 years ago, they started to gravitate back to their home in Belgrade. And they were fully trained bartenders at some of the best bars in the world, trained by some of the best bartenders in the world. And suddenly they thought, hey, we should open up a cocktail bar here. And so that slowly started to happen. And eventually it evolved into what it is now, which is a supremely excellent cocktail bar city. Well, and I thought it was interesting that one of these Serbian immigrants was a man who founded what is considered a game-changing bar in New York called Employees Only, one of the places where uh, the current cocktail movement, uh, if that's a a term, I don't know, is thought to have have germinated, right? Yes, exactly. So this guy who co-founded Employees Only named Dusan Zaric, a guy from Serbia, he worked at a bar called Pravda, which you might remember it used to be in Soho. Oh, and, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. And he was trained there by a guy named Dale DeGroff, who's kind of like the Jimi Hendrix of bartenders. You know, he's like a legend. <laughs> and um, and and so that's where that's how he got his training from this super great bartender. And this, another guy named Dayan Tomovic, he was at Pravda too. So so that guy went back to Serbia and started some bars and kickstarted this revolution of cocktail bars in Serbia. And Dusan Zadic stayed here and he opened up employees only. And as a result, he became kind of like a hero to the cocktail people in Belgrade because he not only made it in New York, but he he helped start this cocktail movement that became a global phenomenon. 
And just to give some background on this cocktail movement, I mean, I think what was striking about it, to me at least, was you had a time when when prohibition obviously put a damper on cocktails as an art. And after prohibition, for some reason, clear liquids became the the, the cocktail of choice. You, you know, in the 80s, 90s, you had cosmopolitans, which were mostly vodka and gin based. And then somehow everybody rediscovered brown liquids and rediscovered uh, a lot of the recipes that were really hot before prohibition. And I think that's, I mean, Dale DeGroff, he he founded Tales of the Cocktail. He founded a, a cocktail museum in New Orleans. He's been really influential in looking at drinking as a potential art form. And not to get too deep into this, but but is, this, is, that, is that your understanding of the history or, or am I getting something wrong? No, that's that's true. And one thing that helped Belgrade become this great cocktail bar was it a matter of timing because it was right around the same time, about 20 years ago, suddenly everyone just started to become interested in artisanal cocktails and old school cocktails from pre-prohibition and everything. And so they just kind of the Belgrade scene just kind of slid right into that movement and it worked out perfectly. Had it happened, you know, 10 years earlier, 10 years later, I don't know if Belgrade would be where it is today in terms of the cocktail scene. Right. And what I love about it is a lot of these bars you walk into are tributes to employees only in New York City, right? Yeah, that really surprised me. I just, I didn't understand until after a few trips there and I saw this, the effect that this one bar and Dushan Zadich had on the cocktail scene there. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. I love the fact that that you, when you said you were from New York and that you knew employees only, in fact, that you live near it, they took you behind the bar and what did they show you? Yeah. There was a whole homage, almost like an altar to employees only with a, a napkin, a coaster, um, several other sort of remnants of employees only all with the logo on it with with a candle lighting it as if it really was like some kind of altar. And then even the bar at this one bar called Hanky Panky has kind of a curve, has like a wave curve to it. And uh, and he told me this is a replica of the bar. And then there's another bar in Belgrade called Druid Bar. And that also has a curved bar. And the bartender told me when I, yeah, this is like an homage to employees only also. <laughs> wow. So uh, those that don't look like employees only, what makes them special? You know, what's great like about the bartenders there and how skilled they are is that because up until up until about 10 years ago, it was really hard to get certain ingredients to make a high quality cocktail in Serbia for various reasons, um, geopolitical reasons and and political reasons. And the bartenders up until that point really had to improvise and figure out like, well, we, we don't have this, we don't have that. So how can we make, you know, this proper cocktail without these? And they had to kind of figure it out. And as a result, a big style of the cocktail bars in Belgrade are, you know, some of them do have menus with signature drinks, but what they really like is when you go in and you say, well, here's, here's what I like, you know, and then they'll come up with something for you and get creative and be inventive. And so that's really like, I know a lot of cocktail bars do that around the world, but it's a real hallmark of Belgrade cocktail bars. Interesting. And are they friendly places? I mean, if you don't speak Serbian, can you get a good cocktail? Can you meet somebody to chat with you? Yeah, almost everyone I met there um, spoke English very well. And I've been to Serbia probably six or seven times in my life. 
And every time I leave, I have like 10 new friends. I mean, you know, and I, for my job, I travel the world and I meet people all over the world. There's something about Serbians that they're so warm and hospitable and friendly. You know, people hear what they hear about Serbia is they remember the wars of the 90s. And sure. also politically, Serbia is a little bit more Russian leaning. And right now that mm. doesn't sound very great. But the right. but as politics aside, the people I've met are very friendly, very educated, not necessarily Russian leaning, um, because Belgrade's a big cosmopolitan city and has a lot of educated people. But despite all that, the Serbians are incredibly warm and friendly. And it's always blew me away after every time I went there about how welcoming they were. Well, so now we know that they're welcoming. Now we know that they make great cocktails. But what are the other reasons to go to Belgrade, which is, I got to admit, a city I've never been to? There's there's some legitimate tourist sites. You know, there's a whole, a huge fortress right on, you know, what makes Belgrade interesting is it's at the, the meeting of two rivers, the Danube and the Salva River. So, so it's very water-oriented. Um, and there's a fortress overlooking the meeting of those two rivers, which is beautiful. Um, From what era? A medieval fortress or more yeah, current? Yeah, the, the Ottoman Turks first built it because huh. um, this used to be part of the Ottoman Empire. So, um, sure. And then there's also like, there's an outlying neighborhood, a historic neighborhood called Zemun. And the architecture is completely different because that Zemun was right on the border of where the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire met. So the architecture of Zemun is very Austro-Hungarian seeming. And then when you go further into the center of Belgrade, it looks a little bit more Ottoman, I guess, um, for the buildings that have survived all the destruction that's gone on there in the last hundred years. You know, it's not, Belgrade isn't like, it's not like Prague or Venice or Amsterdam or Paris, you know, where there's like all these museums to go to and sites to see. Um, It's really just getting a feel for the energy of the place in a way that's similar to going to Berlin today. You know, you go there for the vibe and the energy, but not really to be astounded by the physical aesthetics of the place. Well, you could go to a lot of museums in Berlin, though. Sure, sure. But you don't go there to walk around and be awed by the beauty of Berlin, necessarily. Right. Interesting. And and have you been to other parts of Serbia? What 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 are the highlights of Serbia? Um, Novi Sad is great. It's the second city of second biggest city in um, in Serbia, and it's it's pretty interesting too. For the same reason, it's a little bit more aesthetically pleasing than Belgrade. I went. I also went to some. There's this drink there called. Um, it's a kind of fruit brandy called rakia, and I went. Um, on my last trip there, I also went to some rakia distilleries around Serbia, and I and that was really interesting too because rakia is ubiquitous in the Balkans, but Serbia is very much known for it for making it for being like the best rakias in Serbia. And it used it used to be like moonshine. Everyone's grandfather and father made supposedly the best rakia. And what you when you could buy it in a supermarket, it was always this industrial kind of rot cut. But in the last like five or six years. There's been an artisanal rakia movement, and so now you can drink some really high quality rakia. And the, the wow. really great rakia called Yebiga, Y E B I G A, just is the first Serbian rakia that's entered the U.S. market. So you can actually buy high quality Serbian rakia now, as of one year ago, about. And so that's okay. for me. That's really exciting because I love rakia. I wrote that down. So do you eat, drink it on the rocks, neat, as a cocktail mixed with other things? How do you drink rakia? Most people drink it neat as kind of like a sip, a shot or in a shot glass, but you might sip it. But, you know, back to the Belgrade cocktail bars, when I asked some of the bartenders, what is there? Is there a something specific that makes this like a particular Belgrade cocktail bar or 
is this just like a cocktail bar that could be plopped anywhere in the world and it looks like a fancy cocktail bar? And the thing that kept coming up with some of the bartenders was, you know, we, we, if you, we like to mix our drinks with Rakia because we're, we're Serbian and Serbian, Rakia is kind of, you know, endemic to our lands. And so we, you know, if you're in the Caribbean, you're going to get rum cocktails. If you're in sure. the American South, you know, you might get bourbon, for example. But here it's Rakia. So you're, we're, we're going we're gonna to make a cocktail that involves Rakia. So that's kind of like, you know, one of the signatures of the cocktail bars in Belgrade is this Rakia. Fascinating. Wow. Well, it's always such a delight speaking with you, David. Thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thanks for having me. Next guests are Kay and David Scott. They are the authors of a terrific new book called Exploring the Oregon Trail, America's Historic Road Trip. Hey, Kay and David, nice to speak with you. Great. Thank you for having us. Nice to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. We appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. My pleasure. So, Kay, before I get into how we should do this road trip, I I want to just give our listeners the history of the Oregon Trail in a nutshell. I know you can't give me the entire history here, but for people who have heard the term but can't quite place what the Oregon Trail was, what would you say? It was the track that the people that wanted to make a new life out west followed and it had been originally the Indian Trail and then the, the Trapper's Trail. And then the pioneers followed basically the same trail from Independence, Missouri, across the country to Oregon, where they were going to get free land. So they followed the water, uh, just right. like Lewis and Clark. It wasn't the same water, but they needed water for the livestock and for themselves. So they followed the rivers, and they ended up in the desert uh, between rivers sometimes. But the water was was a very important item for them in in planning their trip. Right. And I guess, I mean, would it be fair to say the most famous folks who attempted the Oregon Trail were the the Donner Party? <laughs> they definitely. I mean, that, that's that's the party that's remembered. They had the most trouble. But they were headed to California rather than That's Oregon. True. But they did, it, and a lot of people don't think about this, but the uh, trail followed by the pioneers to Oregon, much of it was also followed by uh, people that were going to look for gold in California. So the, uh, across Nebraska, across uh, the, the biggest part of Wyoming, uh, that the, both the California-bound uh, people and the Oregon Trail-bound people, uh, they they were on the same same path. Right, right. Absolutely. Okay. So to do this book, you guys took the Oregon Trail, not once, not twice, but three times. And obviously you're still here, unlike the Donner, much of the Donner Party. You think that this is a really wonderful way to see America. What does this trail, beyond the history, which we'll get into some of the top sites to see along the trail, beyond the history, why does this swatch of America so appeal uh, to road trippers, David? One, one of the great parts of, of following the trail, first of all, uh, people don't actually follow all of the trail. Uh, parts of the trail have been covered by roads. 
but uh, that there's, there is a path that follows parallel to the trail and in some cases overlays the trail. And uh, one of the things that, that really is so important in following the trail is all of the landmarks that the pioneers noted uh, are still there. And you can see the ruts made by the wagons and the livestock. You can. I thought that was astonishing that that there, you you actually in the book say go to this park and you'll actually see the ruts still. Crazy. Yes, you, you do, and you can walk. In some cases, you can walk in them. There's a place in southeastern uh, uh, Wyoming uh, in Guernsey that you can actually walk along a a, a major cut in sandstone where the wagons and the livestock cut a five foot deep uh, trough in there. Wow. Wow. Uh, incredible. So you you can actually have a feel for it. But you also said at one point in the book, one of the reasons you like this trail is because it takes you to parts of, of the United States that tourists don't usually go to. Isn't that the case, Kay? Yes. We talk about the major two towns uh, Independence, Missouri was big, not that big. And then Oregon City is part of Portland or the edge of Portland. But in between there are all these nice little communities or towns, even Topeka, Kansas. I mean, it's bigger, but it's so easy <laughs> to navigate. And the people are so friendly. It's just really a pleasant, pleasant trip. Right. And one where you're not going to be overcrowded. It's not going to be a place where you, you know, elbow to elbow with other tourists. So let's start in Independence, Missouri. This should have occurred to me, but it didn't, that a lot of people who were doing the Oregon Trail weren't really prepared for it. And so they would show up in Independence basically without supplies, without the right transportation options. And that made Independence grow in a very particular way. Right, David? Yes. It was uh, near the Missouri River. And uh, a lot of the pioneers came from the east and also some from the Midwest. And uh, they met in Independence at Courthouse Square. And the square is still there. You can stand in the courthouse square where all the pioneers gathered to gather supplies and to to arrange wagon trains that would head out to the west. So it's a that's just one of the great places to to begin the trip, which will be right. about twenty one hundred miles. Right, and and because so many people came unprepared, I think you said there were like. A full dozen and a half blacksmith shops said there was a market for buying, you know, uh, supplies. And, there, and this is what kind of put one of the things that put this town on the map. When I think of independence, I think of Harry Truman. And that's that's another fun thing you can see and do uh, when you're in there. Uh, it's kind of to the side. It has nothing to do with the Oregon Trail, really. But but Kay, what's fun about about looking at that history? Well, we tried to include things like that, like Harry, uh, his house. We tell where it is and what he's done and, and that you can go visit and, and that sort of thing. There are places all over like that that are side trips, not far from the Oregon Trail, that, that really make the trip, again, interesting. Yeah. And we, no, absolutely. We should mention that Independence was the early starting point for pioneers. 
but uh, the starting points changed. They went to a place called Westport, which essentially has become uh, Kansas City. And that was a starting point a little bit later. And then they moved up the Missouri River, figuring they could move faster on the river and get closer to the, to the uh, bank of the Missouri if they moved north. So Council Bluffs was a uh, a starting point and uh, other places along the river were starting points on the Oregon Trail later, in the later, in later years. Right, right. And uh, so people would start in Missouri and then once they cross the border into what is today Kansas, you say this in such a dramatic fashion, they were leaving the United States. That's not something that those of us today often think about. And the last town they were in was probably one of the last places they could get alcohol. So they whooped it up, a lot of them, before they went into what was at that point, or at least at the beginning of the trail, Native American nations. When people are going along the trail in Kansas, what are some of the top most interesting sites in Kansas that you hope everybody will hit? Because there are too many stops in this book for, for people to go to probably every one of them. One of the ones we, we really love is Elko Springs. It's a, it's a park, and when the creek is running early spring, it flows over like a little cliff, and it's just a beautiful little spot. Another one is uh, the Hallberg Station, which was a... Pony Hall- Express right. stop, and they had a store there. And uh, it went, the trail went right by the station and the building is still there. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. And it's a state park now. And it's, the, it's, I believe, considered to be the only Pony Express station that's still in its original location. Oh, isn't that cool? That's great. Uh, so from Kansas, people went into Nebraska and they get to see one of the top most beautiful natural sites along the trail, which is Chimney Rock. Can you tell our, our listeners a little bit about Chimney Rock? Chimney Rock kind of looks like an upside down funnel. It's wide at the bottom and then goes quite narrow. It has, the top pieces have fallen off in last 50, 100 years. So it's not quite as tall as the pioneers saw, but it's still a very impressive sight. And that's part of right. uh, what the Nebraskans call uh, their own Monument Valley. Uh, Chimney Rock is one of several uh, large monoliths that's on the trail that really excited the, uh, the the pioneers. And we find it the same way today. I mean, it's it's just a terrific drive through western Nebraska headed west. Yeah, I had forgotten that that was in that part. So you have Kansas, Nebraska. Once you get into Wyoming, David, what do you think the highlights of the trail are? One of the highlights in Wyoming is also one of the highlights in the in the entire trail, and that's a place called South Pass, where the pioneers crossed the Continental Divide. It's in southwestern southwestern Wyoming. Uh, just north and a little bit east of where the pioneers stopped at Fort Bridger, where uh, it was a trading post that Jim Bridger ran. But South Pass, I can't tell you how, what the feeling is to drive out to South Pass on this two-track road, which is the old Oregon Trail, and stand at the pinnacle of the Rocky Mountains on a saddle and 
the quiet and there there's there was never anybody else there but us. And it's mm. quite wide, which is quite unusual. You think of a narrow place, but it's quite wide. Wow. No, it sounds absolutely stunning. And one of the things you point out the importance of to the pioneers and also to those visiting these sites today were the many historic forts along the trail. Do you have what if if somebody can only go to one of those, which one would you pick and why were these forts so important along the trail? Okay. It has to be Fort Laramie. Fort Laramie started out as a trading post, and it changed its name several times because it had different owners. But then it eventually was taken over by the um, military to protect, help protect the, the travelers. But they still, the United States Park Service runs it now, and it still looks like it did back then. You can go into the buildings. They have, um, many of them have furniture the barracks have the beds with the soldiers' uniforms hanging beside the beds. Um, the bugle blows at each hour. I mean, it's just huh. it's just great. It's, um, it's one of the best units of the National Park System. We, we really like it. Wow. And, and these forts were basically where uh, weary travelers could get uh, some help, right? I mean, wh- why were the forts important? They needed supplies. Many of them... There, there were no um, blacksmiths around. That's where they'd finally, if they needed something fixed on their wagon or whatever, that's oh. where they would find the blacksmiths. And, and sometimes the doctors, if, they, if there weren't any doctors along with them. And also, interestingly, the, the forts, especially Fort Laramie, which, which was basically the Grand Central Station along the Oregon Trail, they, a lot of pioneers dropped off items there. They packed too much when they left Independence. They brought too much stuff from mm-hmm. And uh, they dropped stuff off there and picked up supplies before they left. Yeah. So as I said earlier, when people left Missouri, they were going out of the United States into an area that was controlled by Native Americans. You have a slew of Native American sites along the trails. What would you what 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 is one that you would want to highlight here? They encountered the pioneers encountered uh, Native Americans uh, basically along the entire trail, and surprisingly to to many people, they they had little trouble with the Native Americans until later in the years when huge numbers of people were passing through to the west, and the Indians be, became concerned that they were going to lose what they had out there. So they And they did. They did. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. And and they were <laughs> they were they were correct in that. And plus they were killing all the buffalo they were, which was yeah, their main they, source they, of food. They did that and yeah. and uh I'm, it's really a sad story and and the, most of the pioneers meant well and I think that they got along well with the Indians at first. In fact, the Indians saved a, a number of pioneers mm-hmm. headed west from tragedy. Mm. Interesting, yeah. So, so what what uh, site would you would you cherry pick for us? Uh, the Dalles was one. Uh, the the uh, the Dalles was was. It, in fact, the Dalles in uh, Oregon. It's on the Columbia River. At the at some point, at it was the end of the Oregon Trail because. 
at that point, the, the pioneers uh, couldn't get their wagons further west, so they put them on uh, boats and, and, and rafts and ferried down the river, which at that time was very dangerous. And the, and the uh, Indians did a lot of work for them there. They earned hmm. money and, and uh, other things that the pioneers paid to do that. Interesting. So if somebody wants to do this type of road trip, obviously they should get your book. But how much time do you think that they have to give to the endeavor uh, to, to drive from independence to Portland today and, and enjoy it? What, what's the ideal amount of time? I would say the very minimum is two weeks. But there is just so much to see, and there are wonderful museums along the way. There are three museums that are just outstanding, kind of the beginning, the middle, and, and almost, well, there at the end, and then uh, in Baker City, that we could spend the whole day in some of those museums. So, it, Can you give the names of the museums and what they show? Sure. In the Independence, actually, they have the National Frontier Trails Museum, which covers the California Trail, the Oregon Trail, and also the Santa Fe Trail, because that was part of it, too, before it split off. And then, naturally, the, the state parks and historic sites have have their own little museums. There's a nice museum at, uh, at Scotts Bluff. Right. And, and Scotts Bluff Western. National Monument. Mm-hmm. And then... And what was the third one? The uh, in, in Idaho, in Mount Pelier... There's the National Oregon California Trail Center. And in that one, you actually go in, and it's almost like they take you on a wagon train. They kind of lead you through and let you pick your supplies, and then you sit and have a fireside chat. And it's it's very interesting. And none of them were crowded. No, no, not at all. And then, then there's the one in Baker City, right, uh, which is closed now for a variety of reasons, but should open I think in another year or two in Baker City, that's in Eastern Oregon, which is an interesting town. Used to be a mining town, and uh, the trail, the the Oregon Trail, went right through there. And is it another uh, museum about the trail, or is it about mining, or is it about both? It's just about the trail, right? It's the National Historic Oregon Trail Interpretive Center. It's the best. It's it's the best. It's It's the it's the very best one along the entire trail. And there's also one in Casper that's very good, too, called the National Historic Trails Interpretive Center. It's operated by the Bureau of Land Management. Right. And they've done they've done a good job. And then, of course, in Oregon City, they've got um, the end of the Oregon Trail Museum, which is everything Oregon Trail. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) As is your book. Uh, Well, thank you so much for appearing on the travel show. I really appreciate it. Well, we enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Watching cable